in Acts chapter 2, um, verses 42 to 47, and that's page uh, 1033 in the Church Bibles. Um, and just as you're finding that, just to say that um, we're continuing in our series, uh, God's Heart for the Poor, really um, just considering what it's going to mean to be a church that is maybe a little more heterogeneous, a little more diverse, a little more engaged with the world outside these four walls than um, perhaps we uh, always have been. So tonight we're going to just uh, delve into a kind of scriptural and theological basis for it all, for this whole um, era of poverty and the Lord's heart for justice. And then we'll hopefully have a bit of a cultural analysis and then we'll get really practical and look at what we can do as a church. So let's begin in Acts 2 verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and have everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Glorious vision, isn't it? Glorious vision of what it means to be church. So let's pray. And Father, we thank you that your heart is for justice and that you choose to use each and every one of us sitting here now. So Lord, would you stir our hearts? Would you continue to break our hearts with the things that break yours? Would your word dwell deeply and richly here this evening? And would we leave this place changed by the power of your spirit? Amen. Amen. Um, as I've been kind of considering this whole area of um, maybe engaging with those who are a little uh, poorer than us um, in many different ways. It's led me to begin to reflect again on the kind of 10 years before I was ordained when I was a youth pastor. And so many sort of scenarios with some of the uh, young guys, the young adults I met have flitted through my mind. But one in particular kind of popped up when I was beginning to consider this slightly, wonderfully provocative title, Isn't Social Action Enough? Isn't Social Action Enough? So about five years ago, um, I worked at a church called St. Paul's Hammersmith. I was a youth and young adult pastor there. And um, one day, my um, intern came flying into my office looking like she'd seen a ghost. And she'd gone into our sort of youth porter cabin, which was a disgusting building at the best of times. Um, and the lights had been all switched off, and this figure had loomed out of the dark at her and scared the living daylights out of her. And this guy, um, we'll call him Danny, um, had come through our social action project, SPEAR, which worked with uh, neat 16 to 24-year-olds, not in education or training. And he got a job, and he'd really started to get on his feet. But we found him sleeping rough in the porter cabin because his living situation had broken down. He was living in an overcrowded house with his, uh, his mum, his stepdad, various other relatives. And he got into an argument with his stepdad. Stepdad had kicked him out, and he had nowhere else to go but to break the window of the porter cabin and sleep overnight in there. I spent an entire afternoon phoning around every sort of homeless service I could think of in London, and I couldn't find anywhere for him to sleep, which broke my heart and was a bit ridiculous, but also sort of shows what's going on in um, our country at the moment. 
So then, of course, I turned to the church family. And within half an hour, I had a bed for the night, in fact, for two weeks for this chap. And it got him off the streets. And he began again to be able to really get his life back on track, to figure out some long-term housing, to continue in work. Actually, gloriously, um, he came along to a sort of discipleship group that I'll talk about later that we did for those guys who came through Spear. And he came to faith. And I still remember the day he was confirmed. And then Sandy Miller came down as a bishop. And he was laying hands on this young guy. And he was transformed. And the thing is, the social action project, Spear, was amazing, and I can't recommend it enough, but it was the whole church community that was needed in order to really gather this guy up and see his life completely transformed. Our challenge as church in 2018 is not to just do stuff, not to just do the social action project, but to allow in the doing, that we will become something deeper and wider and bigger, and that we will engage with the whole of a person, meeting all of their needs. So that's what we're going to be pressing into this evening. That's what was going on in um, Acts 2. So if we consider um, this whole idea of poverty, where did it come from? What's going on theologically? What's going on scripturally? Well, let's just read Genesis uh, 1 and 2, just a small section, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so that's where we were. Way back at the dawn of time, creation, we're created in the image of the living God. And our God is just, and he is mercy, and he is harmony, and he is moral in the best sense of the word. And so he created us to be just, and to be mercy, and to live in harmony and to be moral beings. He created us for relationship with him, for relationship with each other, and for relationship with the creation. And as we rehearse our Christian story, we know that all the disconnectedness came in in Genesis chapter three in the fall. Suddenly, God's image within us got a little bit confused Justice stopped rolling like a mighty river. Our mandate to steward the world, to steward each other, to be in relationship with him, it got lost. And so breakdown occurred. And it's in Genesis chapter 3 that we see the origins of poverty, of all that we see in this world that is hard and difficult and wrong. Tierfund um, put it like this. I just argue that poverty is holistic. It is not just economic or physical, but it's also social, environmental, and spiritual. It's complex and multifaceted. The root cause of poverty is broken relationships which entered the world as a result of humanity's rebellion against God, Genesis 3. At this time, we moved from a life of wholeness, living in perfect relationship with God, creation, ourselves, and each other 
into a life of broken relationships, broken off from God, family, and community, broken off from others, further removed from us, different communities, cultures, or countries, and even from ourselves. So that's where we were. But the glorious news is, as we look through scripture, we are heading somewhere else. There's somewhere we're going to be. And so Revelation, um, this is John, and he is uh, in exile on the island of Patmos, and he has a vision of eternity, has a vision of the new creation, of all that we're called into as church. Revelation 7, 9, John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Where we're going to be. We're going to be there, caught up in the worship of God, in the new creation, with every tribe and tongue and language. The kingdom of God, this church thing that we're called into, that we love and we do, it's not homogenous, it's heterogeneous, it's diversity in the best sense of the world. And so we were there in Genesis 1 and 2, and we did fall in Genesis 3. But as we were talking about um, last term with all our sort of uh, New Testament, Old Testament covenant series, sorry, rescue plan came straight in in Genesis chapter 3 so that we can point as church to what we are going to be, a new creation people. So that leads us to what we are right now. We're church. We're Acts 2. 42 to 47. We're New Testament people. On Tuesday night, we had um, a presence gathering here, and we just listened for words for the church this year. And one thing that came through really clearly was that we're called to be more New Testament. We're called to be more New Testament because this is our reality right now. So let's hear those words again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This early church was a diverse community of people. Just a few verses earlier, chapter 2, verse 5, the early church is born after the day, on the day of Pentecost, where God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun were gathered. Every nation under the sun was represented in the early church. Huge ethnicity, Jews, Gentiles. We see in chapter 5 that landowners were a key part of the early church. Ananias, Sapphiras, although they met a kind of sticky end if you know that story. But also those who were economically poor. Chapter 3, the lame beggar, part of the early church. Paul's writings again and again. He speaks to people who were slaves. They were part of the early church. 
the early church is this beautiful, beautiful picture of the new creation where every tribe and tongue and language will come together in redemption before the Lord, where all will be restored. And that's what we're called into. We're called into diversity for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so what's going on in this diverse community? Well, verse 42, they devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to communion, to prayer. Verse 43, signs and wonders are prevalent. Just a sidebar, um, the most significant supernatural healings, and we are a church that believes that God uh, heals today, that I see have been in the Open Youth Club on a council estate with kids who really you can describe as the last, the least, and the lost. Kids who came in and maybe they've got beat up and their eyes have been smacked in, or they've got conjunctivitis, or they've broken their legs. And my leaders would pray for them. And it wasn't all the time, but every now and again, they were supernaturally healed. And there's something in the justice of God going on there, that his power comes in such significance when we bend into this stuff, when we spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry. Verse 44 to 45, they share everything. No one has need. Can you imagine that? And verse 47, they worship. Right at the heart of all of this is the Lord Jesus and a living relationship with the King above kings. And so it's not some kind of socialist utopia. You know, we know from politics, don't we, that socialism gone mad doesn't quite work. Just look at the USSR, even if I'm quite left-wing in my politics. Rather, it's this church, this new creation, a body of people, prophetically getting hold of what they know, of the eternal vision of the new creation, of revelation, and saying right here, right now, we will bring eternal kingdom realities to bear on the world we find ourselves in. It's Christism, not socialism. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Isn't that our prayer? It's certainly mine. Hmm. So where are we right now? 2018. And in many ways, our culture isn't utterly different to that of the early church. They lived in a pre-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. And we see around us a kind of moral relativism, which is eating away, I would say, at our society, which is exacerbating poverty in all its forms. And um, by moral relativism, I just mean this kind of culture that rises up amongst us that says, you know, you decide what your morals are. You decide what your code is. You live by that. As long as you're kind of not hurting anyone, that's okay. Individualism trumps community in our culture at the moment. We say anything goes, anything's permissible. All truth is, is relative. But the thing is, it's not quite working because our culture is becoming more and more fractured. The rates of anxiety and depression and relational breakdown are increasing. I know that in the lives of my friends, my family, in the lives of people that I regularly meet. And so this idea that the individual in their own thought processes, in their own morality, can just decide exactly what they want. It's not meshing with who we really are because we were made, Genesis 1 and 2, to be in relationship with God, to live by his moral code, 
to steward our earth well, to be before all else relational and communal human beings. Indivision kind of fractures us sometimes. Um, there's a great book that is uh, doing the rounds. Um, and it's just called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson. I'm not sure if some of you guys have come across it. I'm reading it, Tim's reading it. Um, Caution, um, don't totally know where he is with God. It's not an overtly Christian book, but he's got an amazing sort of commentary on our culture, on our context. And he just says this, we are rule generators in as much as we are moral beings, Genesis 1 and 2. And given that we are moral beings, what must be the effect of our simplistic modern relativism upon us, i.e. all morals are relative. You choose what you want to do with no conversation to the other. It is a mask for the strange one, for it mostly deceives the one who wears it. It's a mask for the strange one, because it mostly deceives the one who wears it. And so our culture has almost picked up a mask and said, this is who we are. I'm so confident in myself, I'm going to run with it it's full of deception because it's not linked with the truth of who we are, what we were made for, the truth of God's word and the truth of who we are to become and who we are right now as church. And so we see a loneliness epidemic, don't we? Um, definitely a Christian person. Graham Tomlin, our bishop, has written this amazing book called Bound to be Free. Get hold of a copy if you can. And in it, he just says, individual freedom comes at a cost to social and shared values, where our disembedded lives with no rootedness in a wider structure of existence lead us, leave us powerless in the face of the larger forces shaping our world. Rampant individualism, which is what our culture is running towards, running into, it doesn't work. It fractures us because not only will we save for a relationship with God, we were saved for a relationship with each other. We're called to be community. Economic crisis. Tim spoke about this last week. There's a crisis in housing, there's a crisis in food, there's a crisis in schooling. 1980s onwards, all the stats show that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And as this gap grows, society itself almost becomes overwhelmed and more and more disconnected because we get scared. We don't know how to meet the need. So as society, we harden. We become a little Dickensian almost. And then of course, we see around us that politics has been a bit interesting in the past couple of years. Whatever your politics are, there's definitely been protest votes, hasn't there? Trump, Brexit, Corbyn. All of those things were kind of unimaginable five years ago. But people are spinning out. So Graham goes on to say that we need to be aware that there is a tide and that although we feel we are swimming freely, in fact, we are being inexorably drawn in a particular direction. But he says all of that before he says, if we don't consciously stand against it. And that's where it gets really hopeful, guys. We are the church. Bill Hybels, the local church is the hope of the world. 
And right now, as church, we've got an extraordinary opportunity. Since the 1960s, the church uh, in England has been wonderful at engaging in social action projects, doing great stuff. But I think now the challenge is to go even deeper. That we don't just do stuff, we become something. Because actually no one wants something done to them, do they? But they do want to be invited into something. And my goodness, we've got something to invite people into. The life of this church. How, how exciting. And so as the state fails a little, we as church get to courageously run into that vacuum. And wonderful things have already been happening over the past few years. You just think of uh, the Food Bank Network. That's a church in England mobilizing a project that's so needed. Let's champion that. Immigration is increasing. That's really exciting. That means we're becoming more multicultural as a nation, more revelation, more new creation. London's a multicultural place. We don't escape it in Fulham or Parsons Green. There is such opportunity for us to be a new creation people, to be a church that the Lord is calling us to be. So the challenge for us over 2018, the challenge that we've been sensing as a leadership team, as a body, is in a way to continue to mature, is to continue to become something through the doing of something. So what does that look like practically? Well, it's kind of threefold. We speak to spiritual poverty, we speak to aspirational poverty, and we speak to relational poverty. Spiritual poverty. Before all else, before we even hand someone a food parcel, people need Jesus. That's what transforms everything. A living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who calls each and every one of us by name. That's the heart of Acts 2. Their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in um, Church for the Poor, which is really the book of this season. These guys just write that the church has an urgent mission to retell the Christian message to the poor. Their spiritual issues must not be neglected in our concern to meet their material needs. There can never, never be a divide between the two. Mission, the whole picture of mission is evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel coupled with social action, which then calls people into the community of faith that can meet their every need through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we go back to Danny. And the thing that really changed him was being called into a community of believers. Uh, myself um, and a lady who, who ran Spear at the time, we just got chatting and we were like, gosh, we've got all these young adults coming through church week in, week out. And we've got to find a way, not in a sort of squashing on them, but a way naturally to offer them the gospel if they want to hear about it. So we started a terribly named group called Torch, which really is a terrible name, but it was going to be called Urban Fox, which is worse. So anyway, <laughs> that was not my idea. Um, 
So we started Torch, um, and really, it was just like a life group. Um, at St Paul's, we had our life groups on a Tuesday, mainly, like we do here. Um, and we just pulled apart Alpha a bit, began to talk about the basics of the Christian faith. And slowly, a whole group of young adults came to know Jesus. It was amazing, utterly amazing. So we need to speak to spiritual poverty in all its forms. We need to speak to aspirational poverty. Acts 2, there was no economic poverty because everything was shared. What a glorious vision. Poverty is initially an economic phenomenon, but it's so much deeper than that because it grinds people down and it becomes a kind of all-encompassing phenomenon where any space for creativity for development, for aspiration, ambition in its best sense. Even for laughter sometimes is squeezed out. Because when, if all you're thinking about is where your next meal is going to really come from and how you're going to pay the gas bill, grinds you down. And so we need to step into that gap. And there's wonderful projects out there that we're doing here and uh, further afield. If you're interested in Spear, they're based up at St. Mark's Battersea Rise and St. Paul's Hammersmith. They're always looking for people just to sit with these guys for an hour and do some kind of one-on-one -on -one tutoring and interviewing prep and things like that with them. We've got cross-site debt advice here. Just sitting with people, going through the training, which admittedly is quite a sort of long-winded thing, but we've got a good bunch of people doing it now. And if you've got time, do join with them. You sit and you help people break the cycles of debt. You speak into aspirational poverty. And relational poverty. We all need other people. And actually we all need people who are different to ourselves. And we become more fully alive when we engage in unlikely friendships. Right there, Acts 2. What unlikely friendships? You've got people who are landowners. Friends, genuine friends, if we read scripture correctly, with slaves. When I was a youth pastor in Manchester, I often used to stand at um, the back of our sort of youth gathering and just think, what are these young people doing in a room together? They were the most, all sorts from all walks of life. Um, and I was always bowled over by the genuine, unlikely friendships there and how much they enriched the other. I remember dropping into uh, one of the small groups and there were three girls sitting there sharing life, fervently praying, just loving each other. And two of them, Ellen and Bethan, were you know, very middle class, quite like most of us here, um, and they were heading off to Cambridge. And Leanne was one of our girls from the council estate who'd come to faith. Um, and she had like no GCSEs and an anger problem that she was dealing with. Um, she's doing glorious things now. And they were so different. But they'd met in church, and they got to know each other under the cross in Jesus. And my goodness, what a glorious friendship they had and how rich they were. Actually, a challenge for us is unlikely friendships. Let's just hold that for a moment. Think about your friends. How many people do you know who are utterly different to yourself? Doing this as church is such an opportunity 
for the world out there, but for us too, to be more fully new creation people, every tribe and tongue and language. But in so doing, we need to not just do some sort of middle-class project on people and expect them to just come in here and become like us. I've been so struck, actually, this week by a verse that I haven't really thought about greatly before. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. Paul writes to uh, people who are circumcised and uncircumcised, so that's Jews and uh, Gentiles, but also to slaves. To slaves, he says, each of you should remain in the situation you were when God called you. Each of you should remain in the situation you were when God called you. Actually, the early church wasn't about changing people. It was about meeting people's every need, relational, aspirational, and economic and spiritual. But it allowed that people stayed before the Lord with dignity in the situation they were found in because they knew what was coming, because they had an eternal vision, because they knew where they were going. In doing something, they became something. And so that's our challenge over the course of this series, over the course of this year, that we become a body of people that allows our doing to truly, truly shape us. And it doesn't mean denying who we are. There's no point, you know, me trying to learn to rap. That's a terrible idea. Um, or skateboard. I tried that once. That was also a terrible idea. Um, rather, it's about a maturing. James Hellings is an excellent skateboarder, by the way. I only found that out recently. He's very good. Skateboards from bars. Sorry, sidebar. Right, let's get back to the serious stuff. Um, getting practical. So it doesn't mean denying ourselves. Actually, rather, it's about a maturing and an opening out and a deepening and getting excited by all of this stuff. And so it starts with our hearts. Perhaps the first challenge this evening is maybe as we go from this place, maybe tomorrow afternoon, to try and look through another person's eyes. To maybe think when you're engaging with someone, where are they at? What's their culture about? Is it better to ask them for a cup of tea rather than for dinner? Um, Alpha this term, we've got a really eclectic group, which is wonderful, but I suddenly noticed that um, one table wasn't really appreciative of the sparkling water other than Willa Hearn. Um, and I suddenly thought, <laughs> I should probably just get some Coca-Cola. That would go down better. Going to get some Coca-Cola next week. <laughs> you know, um, sparkling water versus Coca-Cola. Look through other people's eyes, what they're into. Um, Christianese. This is a huge, huge challenge, especially for me. I like big words. Um, we need to learn again and again how to explain the gospel from scratch. Had to learn it continually as a youth pastor, especially when I was um, in torch. English barrier. Actually, multicultural city. What happens when people come over the threshold of our church and their English isn't so good? We need to find ways to work that out. Aesthetics. Thankfully, this, at the moment, isn't the most beautiful church building we've ever been a part of. But, aesthetically, what do people see when they come into church? Does it feel welcoming? Or does it feel a bit, oh, I'm not really sure I belong there? 
Um, a church I worked at before, um, someone put some molten brown um, hand soap in the toilets, and there was a massive furor. Like half the congregation thought it was the best thing ever, and half the congregation were like, this is abominable. You know? um, I would suggest that molten brown in the toilets, I've slightly appeared on the abominable side, um, isn't necessarily the easiest thing for, for some people. So let's think and look through other people's eyes, what we're putting out there. It's fanned into flame in the doing and the getting practical. And we've been rehearsing this stuff and we'll keep rehearsing this, but we've got Glass Door, Homeless Project, Night Shelter, see Ange about that, Fulham Good Neighbor, Rachel Snow's our champion for that. IJM and Angus is starting as justice, Angus is there, Angus is starting as justice group. Um, go and join him, it's gonna be a Tuesday night and Sunday afternoons. Food Bank, it's been wonderful to see people bringing more and more food for Food Bank. Please keep doing it. Jason Zhang is the champion there. Crosslight, dead advice. Um, I think James Geek's doing that. Miriam Furs, Conan. If you've got time, get involved. Creativity. Actually, what might the Lord be bubbling up in you? I've got quite a few ideas. Um, things like universal credit is rolling out. Well, actually, people need access to a laptop and they need access to the internet and they need someone to just sit with them for an hour and help them go through these forms, help them get the benefits that they, uh, they need, that they deserve. Could we create space and time for that? Georgia and her youth work. You know, we've got the Sullivan Court over there, and it, what's it called, Fulham Cross? Fulham Court, that's the one, just up there. Loads of kids hanging about, not much to do. Let's go and engage with them. Let's get on board with Georgia and her heart for that. Our life groups. What if it was a challenge for each of our life groups, for each of us, to say that by the end of the year, this year, there would be two people in our life group, at least, who were significantly different to us, that made us become more fully alive, more new creation, because they nudged us and they were a bit different to us, and it wasn't as easy always to have that kind of homogenous um, conversation. Materialism. Jago's challenge to us actually, live below your means so that we can give stuff away. So that if we hit that point of integrity or you know we lose our job or something, it's not such a shock. Tim had a great idea actually about befriending our local cashiers and baristas. So maybe a challenge is to get in the longer line at the supermarket so that you speak to an actual person rather than, you know, having a fight with the bagging area. Um, <laughs> terrible at that. Um, it's fanned into flame in the doing and it's consecrated in the becoming. So we need to, and we're really good at this actually, guys, we need to offer an audacious welcome, but we need to welcome the newcomer who might look a bit different and might even be a little bit disruptive. You know, when I was at St. Paul's, I had like a kid that would fall asleep during the sermon on the front row and snore. I had to talk to him about that. And we had guys who refused to sit in seats and they'd just be gathered at the back um, against the radiator. What if someone talks through the worship? What if someone falls asleep during the sermon? We're just going to have to become okay with that. It's good for us. And in that... We become a connected and a diverse community. And so I think the challenge for this congregation, for us right here, is really to get to know a new person who is different to us, 
look around. Go and, go and look around. Yeah. Yeah, we all look pretty similar, don't we? Let's be honest. So our challenge is to get out there. Befriend someone who's that little bit different. To go the extra mile. To be ready to, to open our homes, to be interrupted. Um, I need to finish in a moment so we've got time for ministry and worship. When I was at St. Paul's, um, I handed over this torch thing when I left to my friends, uh, Kat and Chris. And they were an astonishing couple. And they really got this. And they just opened their hearts and their homes to these young people. And they would do it again in a heartbeat. They've actually moved now, so they've handed it on to someone else. But it was, it was a little costly. Um, you know, Chris's mobile would go off at midnight sometimes with some of the guys and their issues and things. But it was so glorious, and they loved it. Go the extra mile. Another challenge, I think, is to go about our week, and I'm sure that each and every one of us passes a homeless person who we see regularly, I know I do. And to get to know that person and to look them in the eye and know, Genesis 1 and 2, they are a person created in the image of the living God and they are as equal as you and me. And they're your brother and sister looking through kingdom eyes. And in that, will change, we'll become more alive, we'll become this new creation people that we are, more fully who the Lord is calling us to be, more like Jesus. And we can really pray, really declare, really know that the Lord will add to our number daily those who are being saved. Amen. Amen. Okay. There's been a lot there, so let's just take a moment. Should we, um, should we stand? We'll let some of this um, just settle. Um, so we're going to take a moment in the quiet and then I'm going to hand over to Matt and the band and then Tim to, to lead us further.